Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So did you guys do anything fun last night? Nah, you know, I hung out by the wood stove, watched some Netflix. How about you? It's really boring. I just, you know, I went out, had dinner, just listen- quiet evening. I just sat there and listened to an old Frank Zappa album oh. over and over and over again. Sounds appropriate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which which one? Uh, the old Shake Your Booty album with the song Bobby Brown Goes Down. I wonder why you were thinking of that. Yeah, I, I refer uh, listeners who might might be interested in that 1979 song, uh, not that it has anything to do with contemporary events. Oh, no. It seems very distant from contemporary events. Yeah. As did my evening. It was, yeah, kind of a boring yeah. night. Yeah. Oh, Nothing well. to read. Probably should do a podcast. All right, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Golden Bombshell Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman Woodis and Ben Woodis. Hi guys. Hi Shane. Hey Shane. The three of us today. Last night was not a slow night. No. <laughs> not even close. Oh my god. Yeah, it was a late night. You know, this is the second time in several months that Donald Trump has led me to be glued to Twitter for hours on end. Kind of shocking. So I had the other day, two days ago, I had uh, lunch uh, with, uh, let's just say, a senior lawfare contributor uh, in which I described uh, uh, this document and the person just looked me in the eye and said, that's too fantastical to believe. 24 hours later, it breaks. Um, and um, he texted me the words flab, period, er, period, gasted, <laughs> period. Is that three words or one? Yeah. Yeah. I well, think- for- for those who say, for those who, who who may have been living under a rock or watching other things or been on Netflix last night, of course, we're referring to this 35-page document uh, created by a former, uh, it's been reported, British intelligence official laying out a series of explosive allegations about Donald Trump uh, and his connections to the Russian government, which obviously we'll be talking about at some length today uh, on the podcast. Um, did you want to say something? You're right, I cut you off. No, you did. we're speechless. I I am still absorbing, honestly. <laughs> I think we're going to be absorbing this for a little while, actually. Maybe for four years. We're going yeah. to need absorbent sheets. Right? <laughs> oh, God. You're just going to go there, aren't you? You're just going to go. He you can... will not be deterred. <laughs> All right. This week on the podcast, the FBI and intelligence community have received explosive allegations that Donald Trump's staff had contacts with Russian government officials connected to the recent hacking campaign and that the Russian government has blackmail material on the president-elect. Intelligence chiefs brief Congress and Trump on what they know about who was behind the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign. And what do these new revelations and, we should say, unproven allegations mean for the future of Trump's cabinet picks? 
and his national security policy. Um, well, I wanted to start the table by kind of laying my cards out on it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because you, you have a hand to play in this I conversation, have a hand to play Shane. In this conversation. And true. a really great story in this morning's <clears throat> Wall Street Journal. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we have we work with what we're given. <laughs> And in this case, <laughs> yeah, the gift that keeps on taking away. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so basically, as long as I've been at the Wall Street Journal, which has been about four and a half weeks or so now, um, <clears throat> my number one sort of job, along with a number of my other colleagues, has been to report on and try and substantiate the the numerous allegations that are contained in this 35-page document, uh, which has been being passed around all over town. Many media organizations had it. We were one of them. Um, uh, uh, congressional staff have it. Uh, the FBI, we know, had it. The Director of National Intelligence, intelligence agencies, all these people had this document. And the big question was, well, the two big questions. One, is any of it true? And we'll talk about some of the specific allegations in it. And two, what do people in official positions in government think about this? And are they investigating it? Um, and basically, every time we tried to validate things in this report, we sort of hit brick walls, which is not to say that we were able to disprove things in the report. It was just that many of them were very difficult to affirmatively prove. And in some cases, I felt like would require access to information like official travel records that we don't easily have access to. So it was a... It was a Really difficult reporting challenge, uh, but we put resources behind it as a lot of other places did. Um, the discussions, I think, were always predicated on when and if do you report on such a thing? I mean, is it significant that intelligence agencies and the FBI are looking at it? Yes. Does that mean they're open to criminal investigation? Well, maybe not. We don't know that. Um, fast forward to Tuesday night, and CNN uh, broke the story that the a summary, a two-page summary of what's in these 35 pages, which was created by a private investigator, we should say, and for political clients, both Republican and Democrat. So there's a world in which this document is also considered opposition research on Donald Trump. But uh, a summary, a two-page summary of those allegations was put into the highly classified briefing on the Russian hacking campaign that four intelligence chiefs gave to Trump in New York last week. Uh, so once CNN had confirmed that the intelligence community considered this significant enough that Donald Trump needed to be aware that it was out there, uh, they believed, rightly in my opinion, that there was a reason to write about the underlying document itself, uh, considering it had now elevated to this level where it's being briefed to not only the president-elect, but the subject of the document. Well, um, and can I just And stop, then we followed through. Yeah, can I stop you for a moment and, and ask a question about precisely that? So- what CNN reported that others didn't have is that it was briefed to the president-elect, right. right? And so that changes the story for you. Why? I mean, from a from a reader's perspective or the public's perspective, what's the significance of their or why would the intelligence chiefs decide to brief that information, which is unsubstantiated, to the president-elect? Well, what we're hearing so far, and I could, and I would not presume that these were the only that we've definitively nailed down all the reasons why they did it, um, is that they wanted to make him aware of it because it was circulating, because it was out there. Now, I'm a little perplexed by that explanation, which we've heard so far as the sort of "Hey, it's a heads up," because that speaks to wanting to sort of give you a heads up politically, as in if this thing came out, it could be very embarrassing for you. 
Um, it seems to me, and I'd love to know what you all think on this too, that if the intelligence community sort of as a group of senior leaders decides there's something here he needs to know, they're not interested in his ability to politically exist and, and effectively operate politically. They're interested in his ability to to make policy. No. So I, I, I think it's more defensive than that. It's it's not political defense. It's it's uh, it's compromise defense. That is, if um, uh, the, the president, if any of it is true, the president is at his most vulnerable if the only person who people who knows are him and Russian intelligence. And if uh, he knows that the intelligence committees know and that uh, our intelligence services know uh, that actually diminishes the exposure somewhat because one of the one of the fears would be that you would disclose this and these people would find out and so that there's a there 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 is a a, a defensive value in making clear to the incoming president that uh, our intelligence services already know about this stuff it's being circulated the people on the hill already know about it um, and. And I think that actually diminishes its possible value. Okay, so the argument being that the president, the president-elect, is potentially vulnerable to blackmail, but only to the extent that this information is secret. To the extent that the information becomes public, then the blackmail threat is no longer there. Well, look. Or not public, but more widely known, which I, I have to say as a sort of uh, consumer of, of the news, rather than as somebody like you, Shane, who you know, who has been investigating this or you, Ben, who is part of this circuit of of people in and around the intelligence community who have been aware of this stuff and rumors have been out there for even longer than the documents have been, you know, so from outside, I say, wow, all these journalists had this document and have been trying to report it out. All these people on the Hill, in the IC, in the think tank community had this document for weeks, if not months, and I'm only finding out about it now. And I guess I can, you know, I, I, I understand why news media would not have printed it as long as it just looked like some random piece of rumor, opposition research, potential garbage. Um, but the fact that the intelligence community briefed this to the president and the president-elect says to me that it's not just a totally unsubstantiated document that reporters haven't yet been able to report out the facts on. The IC, which has access to, for example, travel records, right, Shane? Right. Must think there is something to this or they wouldn't bother. Okay, so that's one possible read. The other possible read is from an email I got this morning. I'll keep the name of the sender out of it, but this is a gentleman who uh, I woke up this morning and went to a 7 a.m. deranged workout at my uh, solid core gym. And uh, this guy uh, was there and uh, emailed me um, after solid core class. He said, great seeing you at solid core this morning. As I mentioned, I really enjoyed your and Susan's lawfare piece last night on how to understand the Trump memos. If you get a chance on rational security or as an addendum to your piece, would be very interested in hearing from you and Shane in particular whether the fact that Intel and so many news outlets have had the memo for a couple weeks and haven't found solid evidence yet is a big red flag 
or a normal pace for an investigation of something like this. So this guy reads the question in exact the, the, the delay uh, and the posture in exactly the opposite way from. If there from, were there, there we would know by now. Or or the the fact that the fact that we have lots and lots of uh, news outlets who have held off because they can't verify anything and intelligence agencies that are um uh you know not saying they can verify any of it um but you then know why brief it to the president elect well, what do you think Shane? so this is exact so to the to the point that, that 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 Ben's friend is raising that that fact that we could not find anyone to substantiate it and that we knew that a lot of our competitors and colleagues had it and that they too couldn't. I mean, the idea that if it, something would have broken by now if it were true was one of the factors weighing against publishing and writing about this because we felt, look, we're trying really hard. Lots of people are trying really hard. Something somewhere would have broken by now. Um, but, you know, and, and again, it wasn't dispositive. We didn't disprove it either. But there was that 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 real – to a certain sense, it just seemed fishy, frankly, that nobody had been able to break anything on this. When we learned, though, that the intelligence chiefs had briefed this, our reaction was similar to what yours is tomorrow, which was like, there must be something here. I mean, if if they're briefing to the same, they at least think that it's not so incredible that he doesn't need to know that it exists. Right. And then it becomes a matter of policy, that this is your intelligence chiefs telling you, you need to be aware of this thing. It's also not entirely clear to me if they verbally told him or if he read about it or if he didn't read what was in the document because that, sort, that would not shock they're me. Sort of, their staff seems to be professing some surprise at this this morning. Um, but you know, that I thought, and certainly our editors agreed, created a reason to write about it. I mean, put it this way if we had been the ones at the Wall Street Journal to find out that it had been briefed to the president elect, well, we would have done the same thing it's CNN a, did. A, wait, wait, as a news judgment, that is a no brainer. No brainer. The, yeah. the president elect gets a briefing. From the senior intelligence community uh, leadership uh, to the effect that there is material circulating alleging a Russian compromise file on him, yeah. it would be journalistic malpractice of course, of not course. to report that. And so, if we're, if we're just reading between the lines here, I'm imagining we're, we're still finding out, you know, as the day goes on, but that those intelligence chiefs likely looked at this and said, "This isn't just, you know." foolish, you know, fever swamp material. There may be something to this. Or at the very least, if it were ever to get out, could become extremely complicating and he needs to know about it. Now, what I think, and I'm just speaking for myself, how I would have argued internally, I'm, I don't think we would have published the whole document. Um, and I understand a BuzzFeed, for people who don't know, went ahead and published the, the 35 pages uh, of the document, and and there's a there is a big debate going on in journalistic circles this morning, and there will continue to be on whether they should have done that. Um, notably, CNN, which also has the documents, did not publish them. It wrote about them. It wrote about them in general terms with enough specificity to know that it involved allegations of criminal wrongdoing uh, and sexual conduct, uh, sexual conduct, this kind of thing, right? Without having everyone read it. Um, when that document, I will say, became live, it did change our approach to writing about the story because now we did feel that we both could and needed to write about it with some more specificity because we had been looking into these very specific allegations. Right. So, look, I, I think the the question of whether once there are stories about the document – 
that you should public, you know, that putting the document itself out there for purposes of, uh, you know, so that we have a common reference point for the conversation. That's actually a tough question if you're a sort of guerrilla media organization like BuzzFeed. Um, I think it's uh, not a particularly tough question for more uh, serious uh, establishment news organizations. When the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal report something, uh, the readers should have the benefit of being able to assume that it's true. And, uh, you know, I think the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post don't get to say in a sort of... Um, you know, fun-loving information wants to be free. Hey, people are talking about this document. Here's the document. If that were our standards in news, there would be a lot of, uh, let me be blunt, bullshit out there that we don't, uh, we wouldn't really want to see polluting the public discussion. So look, I think that's fair. And I think particularly in an era when public trust in a lot of institutions, including the institution of our professional media, is low, um, it is important for journalistic entities to maintain standards so that readers can have some faith that when they read something in the Wall Street Journal, it's true. Um, I appreciate that. I, I think what's interesting here is the interaction the, the engagement back and forth between people in and around the intelligence community on the one hand and people in the journalistic world who cover the intelligence community on the other hand. And, you know, what changed here was a, a choice made by the heads of the intelligence community to, to put this information in front of the president and president-elect and the leaderships of Congress. And, you know, so it seems to me that to a certain extent, there's a responsibility gene operating between the, both the journalists and the people in the IC about how to handle unsubstantiated information. And so I guess I come back to a desire to understand better the, the motives or the reasoning of the intelligence chiefs in making this choice, in making this change, which seems to have changed the way everybody with that responsibility gene handles the well, information. But you know, I, I guess the other <laughs> question is now that this is all out in the open um, and we've already seen some reaction, uh, Trump's lawyer who was allegedly, you know, in Prague meeting with Russian agents has flatly denied he was in Prague at ever. the time, ever, actually. But now he's said that this document says something else. The facts exist, you know. Can we now move this story forward? Do you think the fact that, that the document is now public, Shane, is that going to help break this open? I think it's entirely possible because I think two, two things are going to happen now. Well, well, three, but they're all related. One, journalists are going to redouble their efforts to go back and investigate this, and it will be given you know high priority from the top of their newsrooms. Do you and, think that sources will talk more now that the document's public? Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. Although I think that, I mean, certainly the people we've been talking to pretty extensively weren't able to verify it, but there may be corners, you know, deeper or layers deeper who who will talk about it. Or it's entirely possible people were 
not being completely forthcoming with us. Let's hold that as a possibility too. Also, now that the document itself is out there, a lot of more journalists who didn't have access to it now have access to it. So in addition to national security reporters, if you are someone who reports on banking and finance, you may start pursuing leads via that channel of sources that you have. Or, or somebody who knows who Michael Cohen's <clears throat> travel agent is. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, or Czech journalists who might have easier access to certain hotel records in Prague than right. American So journalists. stuff is going to come out. Um, two, I do think that there will be you know, more forthcoming from sources inside. And the third is Congress. Um, you know, it has been reported <laughs> that uh, John McCain gave this information to James Comey, but that the FBI already had it. Um, Lindsey Graham, close friend and, and working partner of, of James, John McCain, said on Meet the Press this weekend that he believed there was an FBI investigation into whether there were contacts between Trump personnel and the Russians. I mean, people have been asking in public around this a lot, and a lot of mostly Democrats, but also Republicans. And this well, is... And, and can I remind that there were oblique references to this even before Election Day yeah. from Senator Reid. That's right? absolutely right. I mean, yeah, we not, should read... Not so oblique. Well, I mean... and we should, we should read these 35 pages as like the urtext of all of this suspicion and chatter and anxiety about Trump and Russia. It right. largely stems from these allegations. So, so this, is, this, is, this is the critical point about this, which Susan and I tried to bring out in, a, in our Lawfare post last night. But, you know, the allegations don't have to be true and don't have to be verified in order profoundly to affect the conversation. And the fact that this document has been circulating as widely as it has over the last uh, month uh, on the Hill, in the executive branch, and in the press has profoundly affected the debate. I'm convinced it's the reason. I mean, go back and listen to John McCain and Lindsey Graham's comments at the Armed Services hearing last week. Knowing that they the had hearing about Russian hacking, the hearing the about Russian hacking about the election. Listen to those comments, knowing that they had seen this material, and they take on a completely different color. Somebody tweeted at me last night that our last episode of Rational Security takes on a completely different tone now that this story has broken. And he is referring to certain things that I said and that Susan said. Um, and, you know, so I, I think a lot of anxiety that was described as anxiety about Russian hacking is really anxiety about Russian hacking in the context of uncertainty about what uh, Trump's underlying relationship with Russian intelligence is. Well, and this now, I think, shifts the tone considerably for all of the many <laughs> confirmation hearings that are scheduled this week and now next week as well. Um, originally, we were going to have just, a you know, almost a dozen confirmation hearings all this week. Um, now, some of them have been pushed into next week. But today we have uh, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State nominee, in fact, right now sitting in front of uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And it it certainly does help explain why senators, both Democrats and Republicans, have been so focused on Russia. But it also strikes me that, number one, whatever these nominees have to say about policy toward Russia now, whatever they may have prepared, in other words, is going to be really, really insufficient in light of the news from the last um, from the last day. 
they're going to have to have more to say. The The incoming administration is going to have to have a clearly defined and pretty aggressive policy toward Russia if it wants to satisfy all the concerns and criticisms of the legislative branch and, and the media and the public. Number one. Number two is... Um, I think there was already emerging a strategy among Senate Democrats in particular um, of using Russia as a wedge issue, understanding that there were Senate Republicans who shared their concern about Trump's attitude toward Putin, which was publicly demonstrated and really kind of inexplicable. Uh, so they were already trying to hang Russia around the necks of the incoming administration and use it as a political football. Wow, you know, now they really get to do that. Maybe they, maybe their concern was more sincere than than we gave them credit for for all the reasons Ben is saying. But whatever the question, they now have the ability, I think, to push this issue, uh, and it it may indeed haunt the administration for a long, long time if they can't come up with a substantive response. And, and let's think about along those very lines, like trying to tie it onto them. What I thought is so fascinating is the context in which this two-page summary of these 35 pages of memos is conveyed. It's put into the most highly classified, roughly 80-page version of the report on the Russian hacks that is delivered, you know, to Trump, who has said he doesn't believe. Remember, when, remember back when the only controversy was that he didn't believe the intelligence community on Russia uh, and was sensitive about their interference to help him in the election. It's fascinating to me that it's delivered in the context of that conversation and of that moment. Now, maybe you could argue, well, it's the only time that the four intel chiefs are going to be in a room with Trump, and so we might as well do it here. But it's tacked on as an addendum. One of the allegations in these documents is that associates of Donald Trump arranged for cash payments to the hackers. I mean, it's it's now again, that is unsubstantiated, you know, in the extreme right now. But a big part of this report goes to collusion and complicity by the Trump campaign with the very operation run by Russia that he said wasn't run by Russia. So, right. so I think, they weren't just innocent beneficiaries. Right. No, this is a, this is alleging at the senior levels of the Trump organization an outright collusion, which would be, I mean, criminal content to say the least, context at least. To me, I mean, the intelligence chiefs having read this document, these, these memos being very familiar with it, that is fascinating to me that in the context of a briefing following an open hearing a few days before on the findings of the intelligence community's investigation into the Russia hacks, that that is the moment and that this is the document in which they choose to convey that information to yeah, them. Yeah. And, and look, it is significant that the intelligence community chose to convey it to him at all. And, you know, the intelligence community as a general matter uh, does not go to the president with what Donald Trump calls fake news or political witch hunts. Um, their job is to convey to the president things that for some uh, reason related to either the national intelligence priorities of the United States or related to threat information or related to, in this case, apparently some significant FCI interest, foreign counterintelligence interest, the president needs to know, right? And so it is, you know, th that in the context of a requested review of the Russian hacking in the context of the election, they chose to brief the president and the president-elect on these allegations means that there is some, it doesn't mean it's true, 
although it could mean that they've concluded that aspects of it are credible, but it does mean that there's some reason that they think the president-elect needs to know this. Okay. So I think there's there are two ways this I could see this playing out. One is that the incoming administration, which is already very evidently on the defensive over this stuff, um, decides it needs to... Uh, sort of go further down the road of of what they did after the IC chiefs briefed uh, the president-elect last week. In other words, kind of walk back his his insistence that the Russians aren't, you know, bad actors. Um, so one direction they could one direction they could go is to come up with an aggressive pushback on Russia kind of policy. But the other direction they could go is to say this is all due to the politicization of the intelligence community and we don't trust these guys and, you know, they're just trying to make us look bad and they love Obama. And uh, as soon as, you know, and then as soon as Trump comes in, he he will conduct that reorganization slash purge that we've heard reported on over the last week. So, I mean, but it seems to me that it it could easily be one or the other. Well, so look, does the president have the authority to uh, fire a lot of people in the intelligence community and reorganize the intelligence community? Yes. Um, I think after this happened, uh, it would be very hard to remove a bunch of people. Um, and the You mean very hard politically? Yes. Well, I, I, mean, I, think, I think if you're... If you if you assume that Lindsey Graham and John McCain uh, are the uh, the 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 median voters in the Senate for how aggressive you're going to be in investigating this, right? That a lot hinges on how John McCain wants to use his committee, how aggressive Lindsey Graham is going to be. Yeah, that not the, median, but tipping tipping point. I think might be more appropriate. But well, okay. okay. I mean that 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 the, they're the they're the fulcrum question yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, they're also the median voters in the sense that the the you know you've Democrats have forty eight votes, and between the two of them, they can get you to fifty. Um, which you you know so it's a it's it's a bit of both. Um, if and if you say after Lindsey Graham said yes last week in public in a hearing in front of Jim Clapper that the intelligence community were the best of us and we you know they were on they were manning the fight and we needed to support them in confronting Russia if your response to that is to say, do what you would have to do to interrupt this, to, to really interfere with this election, which is to say, remove the FBI director, um, you know, put in, you know, do a, a sort of politically inflected reorganization of some of the other intelligence agencies. Uh, I think you're going to, I I think Congress's reaction to that would be extremely hostile and extremely fast. But what would be the practical reaction? What's the mechanism? What's the channel? Do they, you know, um, do they try and legislatively block reorganizations that are, at, at least in theory, under executive authority? Do they then, do the Democrats then win and get the vote they need to create an independent bipartisan commission to investigate Russian hacking? Like, 
What do you what? Let's play this out. Where does it go? Well, there's going to be, <clears throat> I think, some negotiation over that very thing, right? There's a lot of momentum to create a bipartisan commission, which McConnell doesn't want to do. He would rather this be handled by the Senate Intel Committee and largely in secret. It, it seems now the people who are like you know Swalwell and Cummings and others who want that bipartisan commission are going to have a lot of leverage, particularly if McCain and Graham come out and say that they want it. Although they haven't yet. They haven't yet. It would yet. mean giving up their own It would mean control. potentially giving up their own, their authority. Although, I mean, there's precedent for doing both. I mean, there's no particular reason why they can't continue going down that road. I mean, I, I think a lot of this is going to depend, I think, in, in the very near term as well on what Trump says. And he's scheduled to have his first press conference since July this afternoon. His morning tweets do not bode well for that. I mean, he's accusing the intelligence community of, of intelligence community of being, in his words, like Nazis and trying to smear him publicly and and spread false information. Well, but and a- this is exactly why I think that purge approach could well happen. I don't think yeah. it's I think if you're Donald Trump and let's not forget the incoming national security advisor who also has very strong views about politicization of the intelligence community, um you know, if you're these guys and that's your attitude already, and then you've then you've believed that they've leaked to C- the intelligence community or what whoever has leaked to CNN this deeply embarrassing information uh, for you. It's only going to deepen your your desire and political cost in the way that we calculate it is clearly not the driving calculus for this incoming president. We've seen that in a number of instances. So I, look, I, I think there's political cost in the context of the campaign. And then there's the ability to function as president. And those are different political costs. And if you deny John McCain and Lindsey Graham the ability to have a, 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 a serious investigation of this. You will push them into the hands of the Democrats and they will go there. And that's what the significance of that Armed Services Committee hearing last week. And that, you know, it showed that there is a working majority in the Senate of the United States for a serious response and investigation of this. And I think I think if, you know, That's not true on Obamacare. It's not true on taxes. It's not true on a whole lot of domestic issues. But it is true that the uh, the the Republicans who are who who matter most uh, are much more comfortable with with the Democrats here than they are with the, the incoming president. And uh, and I think that is just a reality that the Trump administration is going to have to deal with and starting with the nominations. Um, but and I think the outcome is going to be McCain or Graham or both saying to um, saying to McConnell, you create a, a, a select committee or we will support an independent commission. Uh, and and I don't see how McConnell's going to get away, get around, uh, you know, some sort of select committee. And then McC- and in the near term too, can't McCain and and Graham put holds on nominations, and they can do all kinds of things to muck up the works and sure. make life difficult. Yeah, although there, want. I think you have the sort of um, if you're positioning yourself as the responsible leadership, you know, can you really gum up the basic functioning of the executive branch to that degree when the transition is already weeks and weeks behind where it should be? They don't have cabinet appointees in place. They don't have deputies, you know, and lower positions lined up. Plenty so, of people who could become acting. But and, and that and that also the, the question is, whose problem is that? Who does that put pressure on? And my guess is that put, you know, 
you know, I th- and I think you're going to see this with the Tillerson nomination because Russia is, you know, is front and center in that conversation. But, but you know, all all you have to do in order to put excruciating pressure on McConnell is threaten to hold up a couple of these nominees. Well, you know, watch this space. I'll give you my prediction, uh, and we can we can see if I'm right or wrong a few weeks down the line. My prediction is that the incoming administration will seek to shift. Uh, the focus of the intelligence community and the conversation about what the intelligence community is for and what it should do to make it all about counterterrorism. They're going to say, you know, fine, you know, Russia's an adversary. We'll deal with it as appropriate in the foreign policy zone. Tillerson's in charge of that. But the IC needs to, you know, keep its eye on the ball of Al Qaeda and ISIS and According to Tillerson's opening statement today, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is apparently a a source of radical Islamic terrorism, just like Al Qaeda and ISIS. Um, So I I think that they are going to uh, if they if they want to do a purge, they're going to put it under the cover of a laser like focus on radical Islam. And they're going to use that to try and deflect attention from Russia. Going with the sort of gaming this out idea. Um, let's really game this out in the extreme. Let's just say it's you know I love games. I love <laughs> games too. Um and let's say for sake of this game, this the following scenario occurs after January twentieth. And we can talk about the before January twentieth too scenario. <laughs> there's only a week left. Right. How much more um, can happen? But, by the way, there's no difference between after January twentieth and before January twentieth because there is no mechanism to refuse to swear in a president who's been elected by the electoral college. So okay. yep. realistically, okay. we're 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 after January twentieth, okay. so even if we think point. we're before so it. The last the last shred of denial has <laughs> right. now been right. blown apart. Thank you, Ben. Ben Ben clearly <laughs> knows where I'm going with this line of questioning too. So let's say, okay, in two weeks, on January twenty fifth. Uh, there's a front page story in pick your newspaper. Let's say the Wall Street Journal. Let's say the Wall Street Journal runs a front page newspaper Which saying should sponsor Rational Security, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> buy a subscription. Um, uh, that there is, and just we'll just person X in the Trump campaign and fill in the blank later um, uh, was involved uh, uh, with the hacks, knew about it. Um, uh, let's just say one of these like allegations that's core in the document turns out to be true. I guess there's a what happens next kind of question there. I mean, I mean, again, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic about this, but it's a legitimate question now. This is out there. Can you impeach a president for activity he conducted before he was in office? Um, if the, I could imagine that if it was proven true beyond a reasonable doubt and there were criminal investigations, there might be. Uh, unstoppable pressure by the Republicans to tell Trump to resign. I mean, it, I think these are things that are within the realm of possibility if any of this does turn out to be true. There's also a real possibility that all of this stuff now in scrutiny will just start getting shot down right. day by day by day. And then Lindsey Graham and John McCain are going to have a whole other set of problems. So- I, I think before you get to the impeachment question, you have to get to how much did Trump know and when did he know it, right? And that's going to be really, really, really hard because we don't have White House tapes like we had with Richard Nixon. Right. Um, And so I think what's far more likely is that even if some individual or individuals from the Trump organization or the Trump campaign are found to have engaged in that kind of collusion, well, they get ousted, they don't get appointments, or they resign in disgrace and get prosecuted, and that's that. So I think there's a um, the answer to your question about whether something is impeachable 
is that it's impeachable if a majority of the House of Representatives chooses to impeach on the basis of it. And there's no, uh, even if there's a right constitutional answer to the question of whether pre-office conduct is potentially impeachable, and I don't think there really is a right answer to that question, um, there's no mechanism to prevent the uh, House of Representatives from defining it as such. And so you could certainly imagine uh, if if people became convinced that the allegations were true and implicated Trump directly, that uh, they would regard it as intolerable um, and they could act on it. I think the more the more realistic question, if you imagine something short of that, is um so what if uh there is a series of allegations that are provably true uh about certain individuals uh um within the Trump organization but you uh and they raise the question of the compromise that that they raise the the inference that the campaign itself was colluding in some meaningful sense with russian intelligence but you don't know the extent to which the president by then the president was party to that so that goes to tammy's what what did the president know and when did he know it question but here his organization is you know deeply enmeshed with a foreign operation against the a foreign intelligence operation against the United States and the question of how we would respond as a political culture to that even if the president himself were not obviously sort of personally implicated in it i think is that's a very very hard question to game out and i think it would depend a lot on how confident we were about who in the who in the campaign or Trump organization was doing exactly what and to what extent they could reasonably be said to have been freelancing. Can we just posit for a moment that from Moscow's perspective, having a compromise file on the sitting president of the United States is a great thing. But having a president of the United States so suffused by crisis, scandal, and investigation about potential compromise file is also pretty awesome. Yeah. This is the Russians really come out. They win either way. <laughs> well, so I'm not so again, as I said last week, I'm not sure that they do. What if the end result of this is that Trump is the one president who cannot improve relations with Russia because uh because he is so compromised by the perception of an untoward relationship that you know, if he talks about improving relations with Russia, Congress immediately talks about you know, you know, creating a, a new sanctions regime as it is already doing. If he talks about appointing somebody who has a history of friendly relations with Russia, uh, that becomes a confirmation problem for the person, and so he has ends up having less flexibility to engage in a creative fashion with Russia than, say, Barack Obama, who could contemplate a reset and. And then turn around and you know do a new cold war as circumstances changed and one policy set didn't work. Well, if his tweets this morning are any indication, Russia has never tried to use leverage over me. All caps. I have nothing to do with Russia. No deals. No loans. 
no nothing. I, I got. I, I can say the same thing. I have no deals, no loans. I have one outstanding challenge to the president of Russia, who I will fight anytime, any place. He lacks the authority to have me arrested with an independent drug test. Um, but other than that, they've got no leverage over me. No, not at all. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna log roll for my friend uh, Jay Healy uh, at the Atlantic Council. He's actually a senior fellow over there at the uh, Scowcroft Center on, on International Security, who has a very interesting uh, paper out, which I'm moderating a panel on today. Uh, so by the time you hear this, you know you can web go back and watch the webcast, I guess. But the paper is actually really interesting. It's called "A Non-State Strategy for Saving Cyberspace," uh, and basically the crux of it is that Jay argues. We have put way too much uh, both confidence and policymaking authority in the government and in particular in the military to defend cyberspace. And really, we should be looking to the private sector when possible and thinking more about a non-state strategy for protecting this domain, um, which is going to be a very interesting discussion, I think, today in light of uh, recent events. And, you know, if you think about this whole Russian influence campaign, as the intelligence community calls it, as largely succeeding because they were able to target the email accounts of certain private individuals at political organizations, not the government. Um, and those single points of failure led to the cascade that brought us here. You know, maybe there's an argument for a non-state strategy for protecting mm. cyberspace. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my object today is this paper. Awesome. Well, my object is um, is a new uh, bill introduced by Senator Ted Cruz, that font of of uh, legislative proposals. Um, he's just full of them. Yeah, he's full of many things. Uh, but this this bill is actually a reintroduction of a bill that he put forward last year, um, expressing the sense of Congress that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, should be a designated foreign terrorist organization. Uh, urging the State Department to designate it as such and requiring the State Department to issue a report on whether the Muslim Brotherhood qualifies. Uh, now, this is interesting, I think, number one, because this is an issue where Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and the people around Trump seem to share uh, uh, an approach, which is to see the Muslim Brotherhood uh, as on a continuum with uh, determinedly violent uh, terrorist adversaries of the United States like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and indeed to to argue that there's really no difference between uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and those groups. Um, but the interesting thing is that, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood is not one thing. It's it's many things, uh, and, uh, and it has branches in a lot of different countries, uh, including uh, countries... Uh, where the Muslim Brotherhood has political parties that are affiliated with it, that serve in parliament, and that even uh, head the government. The uh, elected parliamentary government in Morocco is headed by the PJD, which is a Muslim Brotherhood-originated uh, political party. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, runs in elections in Jordan. It sits in the parliament in Kuwait. It sits in the parliament in Bahrain. Um, and so it's it's not a simple matter. Uh, and what's interesting is that last year, this, the version of the legislation that Cruz put forward um, had a list, it kind of acknowledged that that was an issue. Uh, it didn't try to define the Muslim Brotherhood that it wanted the State Department to investigate, but it did note that 
uh, it had these these various uh, branches and had a list of examples to try and make a case for a foreign terrorist organization designation. This year's version really doesn't have any of that. It simply says the Muslim Brotherhood, undefined. Uh, it's very, very spare. And uh, I don't know if that was deliberate. I don't know if we'll see this bill get updated with some greater specificity or if Cruz just decided that he didn't need to bother with all that this year because this year he'll have a friendly administration. We will see. I have a prediction to make on this score. The Muslim Brotherhood will not be designated as an FTO uh, under under the material support statute. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that the facts – uh, will not support such a designation uh, the, uh, for the, for the uh, simple reason that the Muslim Brotherhood as such does not engage in terrorism uh, in any systematic ongoing way of the sort that the, the statute covers. Okay, and- so it's, I think that's a, a good prediction and we'll see. I'll note that Rex Tillerson, the nominee for Secretary of State, in his opening statement today, listed the Brotherhood along with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. As what? As, uh, well, let's see if I can remember the phrasing. I think it was as extremist Islamic groups that need to be combated or something like that. Right. So, you know, the government has lots of tools for combating extremist Islamist groups, uh, and the material support law... Uh, covers a subset of them that uh, the Secretary of State and the Attorney General can jointly find are engaged in terrorism. And I just don't think that's true of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, I have two object lessons and a shout out. Um, My first object lesson is uh, a paper that I'm going to release on Friday. Uh, and we are having a little launch event for it uh, at at 10 o'clock on Friday morning up here at Brookings. Uh, paper on uh, some new data we've collected uh, using Google surveys on the way people actually express privacy preferences uh, through their behaviors. Um, and um, I think a lot of uh, rational security readers will find it interesting uh, so if you can come to the event on Friday morning, uh, I'd love to see you. Uh, if you can't come on Friday morning, uh, we will post the paper both on the Brookings website and on Lawfare on Friday, and uh, you should download it and read it. Uh, second, uh, let's do the shout out second. I, I do think in this discussion of this uh, material, uh, it's important to recognize that the role that the institutional press has played here. The press gets a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, guff these days from just about everybody. And I think uh, this is a model of the way you would want the press to respond to highly explosive allegations in a document that uh, may be extremely important or may be highly irresponsible uh, or maybe both at the same time that kind of milk uh, – filters its way into the public discussion. And every mainstream media organization uh, handled this the same way, as far as I can tell, which is that they assigned a lot of people to investigate the crap out of it, and they let it inflect the way they were thinking about things without publishing it. Um, And 
they waited until an actual news event happened related to that document, which was that the senior intelligence leadership of the United States briefed the president and the president-elect on the contents of it uh, before they actually did anything with it. And I think, you know, everybody has their problems with the press. I'm not different from anybody else. But I think that is exactly the way you would want a responsible press to behave. And I think, uh, you know, it's just worth taking a moment to appreciate uh, the, the, the role that the press has played here. We love you, Shane. Um, On behalf of the institutional press. Thank yeah, you. there you go. Um, <laughs> and so finally, my last object lesson. I just want to flag this for people. I've got this document. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It's like a few Is dozen it pages. It's, it's Is a few, it a bombshell? I, I can't say anything about it because like, I haven't been able to verify the allegations in it. But it's, you know. Is it 35 pages long? It's got some pages. You should put it on the internet. Lots and pe- lots of people are sort of talking about Crowdsource it. Crowdsource it, Ben. Um, yeah. So, you know, I just want to flag for you guys that it exists. <laughs> we will eagerly, eagerly dive into it. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Rate us, rate us, rate us. Rate us, rate us, rate us on iTunes, Stitcher. What are the other ones out there now? Instacast? Instacast used to be a thing. I don't know. Google Pod. Google Pod. People Pod. There's, there's pod a ton people. of them. Go download 10 podcast apps. Go rate the podcast in each one of them. I mean, start with iTunes, but like do it all. I mean, really, they would be great. We don't take donations, so yeah. like do that. And visit Donate our Facebook time. page. And if, yeah. and if you're, we'll write you back. And if you're a big corporation, sponsor Rational Security. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and of course, follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. <clears throat> Our audio engineer is usually Quinta Jurassic, but this week has been substituted by uh, the able Ben Wittes. I've been doing the audio engineering, so if the sound sucks... All your fault, Tweet ben. angry things at me <laughs> directly at him. Uh, our producer and editor is Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Frank Zappa and the Golden Shakes. Oh, didn't go there. <laughs> Are we going to have to post that Frank Zappa song on the podcast web page? I mean, it sounds like it's a hidden gem, it's a, it's an a, underrated it's classic. It's a hidden gem. <laughs> <laughs> Our music, of course, is performed, as always, by the lovely Sophia Yan. Probably glad that she has many thousands of miles away from Washington, D.C. right now. (laughs) On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Coffin-Wittes and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.